Church, if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, and you turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We are in this series talking about how the good news of Jesus spreads like wildfire. And even though the good news spread like wildfire in the early church, that does not mean that they never had any opposition or any obstacles to deal with. In fact, what we see as we walk through the pages of Acts, the story of the early church, is that the opposition to the church was really intensifying. Uh, we, we read a few chapters ago about uh, arrests, and then we read about beatings, and now we're about to read about the first Christian who is put to death because of his faith in Christ. The first Christian martyr was a man by the name of Stephen. He was one of the seven men that was selected by the church in the early part of Acts chapter 6 to take care of the widows and to bring food to them. But what we find out today is that uh, he didn't only take care of the widows, he also was an evangelist that went everywhere and told people about the Lord Jesus in a very bold way. The things that he said got him arrested and got him put on trial and eventually got him killed. We won't actually get to that part of the story until next week, but today we're going to read the very last sermon that Stephen ever preached before the crowd literally started throwing stones at his head. And we're going to start today by reading this whole message together. Now, I want to warn you in advance. I know last week we only had seven verses uh, in our passage for the week. Uh, this week we're on the other end of the spectrum. We have 60 verses in front of us today. It's going to take us about seven or eight minutes uh, just to read through this. Uh, but I, I think it's a good reminder for us uh, to, to always remember that the most important words that we hear in any sermon are never the words that the preacher says. The most important words we hear in any sermon are the words that we read from this book, from God's holy, perfect word. And so if you have your Bible in front of you or on your phone, if you'd follow along with me there, or if not, uh, the words will be on the screens behind me. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and we're going to read all the way to Acts chapter 7, verse 53. Acts 6, verse 8. Eight. God's word says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Chapter 7. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, and this is the beginning of Stephen's message, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. 
and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him 
you shall hear. This is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rimphon, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house." However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Father, we thank you today for this, your perfect word. And we thank you, Father, uh, that you will speak to us even now through your word. And we ask you that you would give us a soft heart that we might hear from you. Father, that we might walk in your steps, that you would show us even today any of those areas of our life where our heart has become hard towards you. And so speak to us now by your Spirit's power and through your word. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the first verse that we read, chapter 6, verse 8, describes Stephen as a man full of faith, or as some versions say, full of grace, and also full of power. Up in verse 5, we know that he was full of power because he was full of the Holy Spirit of God. And we're told that the Spirit of God worked through Stephen in an unusual way and empowered Stephen to do signs and wonders, miracles. And Stephen is one of only a handful of people in the book of Acts other than the 12 apostles who are said to have done miraculous works. But it was not his miracle working that got Stephen into trouble. It was the things that he said about Jesus. And verse 9 uh, talks about the synagogue of the freedmen. This was a synagogue that had, uh, like we talked about last week, Hellenist or Greek-speaking Jews who were from places in northern Africa and places in modern-day Turkey who were a part of this synagogue. They were people just like Stephen, who was also a Greek-speaking Jew, except for the fact that Stephen, of course, was a Christ follower. And so Stephen went into these synagogues and uh, spoke to his fellow uh, Jewish countrymen, and uh, the text says that they disputed with him or they argued with him, and yet, as verse 10 indicates, they were not able to beat him in the argument. 
Uh, they, were, they weren't able to uh, counter the things that he was saying to them about Jesus from the scriptures. And when they realized that they were not going to be able to take him down through debate, uh, they decided to try some other ways. And so just like they did with Jesus, uh, they found some false witnesses who uh, said some things about Stephen that were not true or exaggerations of what he said uh, so that they could try to get him on some trumped up charges. And they were successful in, in turning public opinion against Stephen. And so they went and grabbed Stephen and dragged him in front of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, the same group with the same high priest that a short time before this had voted to condemn Jesus to death. And now they're about to do the same with Stephen. In verse 16, it says that when Stephen stood in front of uh, this high court, that his face looked like the face of an angel. Uh, you would think that that might have dissuaded them from moving ahead with the trial, but it did not. In chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asked him, are these things so? Uh, really, in modern day terms, he was asking for a verdict. He was saying, how do you plead? Are you guilty or not guilty of the things that they are saying against you? And in reality, Stephen never really answers the question. In this entire speech, he really uh, does not answer that. He really does not give a defense of himself at all. Really, from verse 2 all the way to verse 53, Stephen preaches a sermon uh, in response to that question that is really a great summary of the entire Old Testament. Now, if you're not that familiar with the Old Testament in our Bibles, you, you, you can do a lot worse than this summary that is right here uh, from the lips of Stephen, where he just goes through the events of the people of God in the pages of the Old Testament. Now, some people, some critics of the Bible have critiqued Stephen's speech and have said that they think his speech has no point at all. Uh, some have even gone so far that they said his speech was so dull and so boring, that's, that's why he got stoned, <laughs> that they just didn't want to listen to him talk anymore. Now, I hope that is not the case today, that y'all are so bored. If, if, you, if I see you picking up stones, I'm going to duck behind here. But, but that's, that's not the case at all. Stephen's message was not pointless. Actually, it had a very clear point, a point that was very well understood by those that he was speaking to, and that's why they stoned him, because they did not like the point that he was making. Stephen's whole sermon climaxes in what he says at the very end about their treatment of Jesus. Turn to the end of chapter 7 and look at verses 51 and 52. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. So his whole sermon is driving to this point in time where he's going to call this group of religious leaders, the most respected men in his nation at that time, a bunch of stiff-necked men. These were men who were stubborn. That's what it means to be stiff-necked. It means to be stubborn. It means to be rigid. It means to not be willing to turn your head to the right or the left. When God wants to say to you to turn this way or that way, you're so locked in and you're so fixed on the direction that you want to go that you will not listen to him. Uh, God had called uh, Israel stiff-necked in the Old Testament, and here Stephen says the same is true of the Israelites of his own day. 
And then in the retelling of the Old Testament that he gives in this uh, message, he really gives three evidences of how stiff-necked they were. And as we look at these evidences today, I want us to pay careful attention as we do that because the truth is uh, this stiff-necked gene that they displayed was not just something that the Old Testament people of God had thousands of years ago. Uh, We know today we can still be just as stiff-necked as they were. In fact, all of us can be stubborn uh, in refusing to listen to God. I'm sure every believer in this room knows there's been times in your life where you've been hard-hearted and stubborn towards the Lord. Well, he tries to speak to you, and you don't want to listen to it. I know I've had times in my life like that. Maybe you're in a time in your life like that right now. where God is speaking to you, but you don't want to hear what he's saying. Let's pray the Lord would loosen up our stiff necks, that we might be willing to follow where he is leading us. Here's the first evidence of the stiff-necked gene that Stephen shows them. He tells them that they were clinging to some Uh, sacred cows that were keeping them back from actually meeting with the Lord. Uh, Stephen was speaking to some pretty proud, spiritually proud individuals. Uh, These were folks who, uh, who thought that nobody on earth was closer to God than they were. Uh, they, they thought that because of who they were. They thought that because they were the chosen people of God after all. And they thought that because of, of three pillars of their faith, three pillars of the Jewish religion, which were these, the land and the law and the temple. And they thought that because we live in the promised land that God has promised us, because we are the ones that God has given the law of Moses to, that he has spoken to, and because we're the ones who have the temple of God right here in Jerusalem, in our capital city, where the presence of God is manifested, because we have all of these things, we are good to go with God, and nobody on earth is closer to God than we. But in this message, Stephen systematically attacked their understanding of all three of their sacred pillars, the land, the law, and the temple. First off, uh, he starts with the land. Stephen's speech begins with Father Abraham in verses 2 through 8. He goes all the way back to the father of uh, the Israelites. Goes back to Genesis chapter 12 where God told Abraham to pick up and move to the land that he would show him. And, And Stephen's making a couple of points there. First of all, he's saying when God first appeared to Abraham, he wasn't in the promised land. In other words, God can meet with someone who is not within the confines of the geographical area of Israel. He also makes the point that even when Abraham did make it to the promised land, he didn't actually own any of it. He didn't even have one square foot of land. That's what it says in verse 5. None of it could he call his own. Instead, God told him that one day after his descendants were in bondage for 400 years, that they would get to live in the promised land centuries later. Uh, When he comes to the section on Moses, uh, Stephen talks about that time when God spoke to Moses from a burning bush. Well, that location was not in the promised land either, and yet God said to Moses, remove your sandals, for the ground that you are standing on right now is holy ground. 
In other words, holy ground is not just a certain piece of real estate in a certain geographical location, no matter how central or special that real estate is in God's salvation plan. Holy ground does not just exist within the confines of the nation of Israel. No, holy ground is wherever a person meets a holy God. And throughout the pages of the Old Testament... God had shown them that that could happen anywhere because the God that they worshipped was bigger than their land. Stephen also challenges their understanding of the law. Now that was one of the charges against Stephen was that he was speaking disparagingly of the law that God had given to them through Moses. When you read this message, Stephen clearly has a high regard for the law. Uh, In verse 38, he refers to it as the living oracles that God had given. But what Stephen is trying to get them to understand is that even though they were a people who spoke a lot about how much they loved the law, a lot about how much they loved the Bible, he was just simply pointing out they didn't have a super great track record of actually obeying the law that God had given them. In fact, in the section on Moses, he talks about how in verse 38, when Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai receiving the law from God at the hands of the angels, that right at that very moment at the bottom of the mountain, the Israelites were putting all their jewelry together and making a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping it. And so he's pointing out from the very beginning when God was literally right at that moment giving us the law, we were already disobeying the law. We were already worshiping idols. And then in verses 42 and 43, he says, we didn't stop. We kept on worshiping the sun and the moon and stars and every other thing we could find. And we did that all the way through our time in the wilderness, all the way even after he he brought us into the promised land. We did that to the point that God said, I'm going to have to take you into captivity to Babylon until you understand that I am the one true and living God. And so first off, he says, uh, when you talk about how much you love the law, you're not even obeying the law. And then number two, he says, also, you have not believed in the one that the law and Moses told us was going to come. If you look in verse 37, this is what Stephen says. This is what, Mos- this is what that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. Now, that's a quotation from Deuteronomy 18.15. And they understood that this was a messianic prophecy. This was about the Messiah. Moses was not speaking about any prophet in general. He was speaking about the Messiah who was going to come. And Stephen is saying that Messiah has already come. His name is Jesus, and you have rejected him. And so he's saying to this group of very proud spiritual people who thought they were saved because they had the law, And he's saying to them, don't think that the law is going to save you because, number one, you don't even obey it. And number two, you don't believe in the one that the law told you was going to come to save you. And then lastly, in verses 44 through 50, Stephen challenges their understanding of their third sacred cow, their third pillar, which was the temple. Uh, Back up in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, uh, another one of the accusations against Stephen was that he spoke disparagingly about the temple uh, that he was going to destroy it or that the Lord was going to destroy it. Maybe you remember that they said the same thing about Jesus. Uh, Jesus had said one time, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days build it back. And in John chapter 2, he made it clear that 
that was not referring to the physical temple. That was referring to his own body, that he was going to die, and three days later he was going to rise again. And yet they twisted his words, and they're twisting Stephen's words here and making it seem like he was saying that he's going to bring a bulldozer up to the side of the temple and knock it over. Uh, Stephen acknowledges uh, the value of the temple in verses 44 through 50. He doesn't say anything negative about the temple at all. He speaks about how David wanted to build it, how Solomon was permitted by God to build it. He knows the place of the temple in God's salvation plan. And yet he's reminding them of what Solomon himself said when his temple was first dedicated. That the God of heaven and earth cannot be contained inside of a building. And then he goes on to quote from Isaiah in verses 49 and 50. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord. In other words, God is saying, listen, I rest my feet on earth like it's an ottoman, right? How do you think that you're going to build a little building someplace on earth and you're going to cram all of my glory and all of my presence and confine me to one building? That's not the case because he is larger than any building on earth. And so he was trying to get them to understand that God was right then doing something bigger than the temple. Now in their minds, there was nothing bigger than the temple. But he was trying to open their eyes to the fact that the temple of God, the presence of God, had just come. The temple of God is the Lord Jesus, God on earth, who was walking among them. Uh, that, that, that the apex of God's salvation plan had already happened with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they had missed the point. And part of why they had missed the point was because they had some sacred cows that were too sacred for them. The way they viewed the land and the way they viewed the law and the way they viewed the temple left them feeling like they were already good with God and they did not need a Savior. The reality is they needed a Savior just like every single one of us in this room needs a Savior. You know, we also can have some sacred cows, even some religious and spiritual things that we talk about that can keep us from actually coming to a place where we meet with God and know Him in a personal way. Sometimes people will say, well, uh, you know, I'm a Christian because I'm I'm a seventh generation Catholic or seventh-generation Baptist, or Presbyterian, or whatever it might be. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm a believer because I have like 18 Bibles on my shelf in my home. You know, like the more Bibles that we have, the more closer we are to God, you know, our bookshelves. Some people will say, well, you know, I'm a Christian because, you know, my uh, my grandfather was a minister. He was a minister in Kentucky. You know, I've heard it said that God does not have any grandchildren, that God only has children. And the reason we say that is because you cannot be saved on the basis of somebody else's faith. You can only be saved when you as an individual, no matter who your parents or grandparents were, you as an individual understand, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And you come to Jesus because the reality is, church, sacred cows will not save us. Only the Savior will save us. And we each need to surrender our lives personally to him. And friend, are you sure that you have ever done that? Well, Stephen gives a second evidence of how stiff-necked they were in this sermon, and, and here it is. He told them that they stood in a long line of people who kept on rejecting God's word and rejecting God's deliverers. 
Stephen starts this message out. He uses the first person plural. He's trying to find that common ground with them. And he's talking about our history and our fathers. He wants them to know this is our collective history. And yet it's not a very pretty history is what he says. Ultimately, we are in a long line of people that keep on rejecting the very ones that God sent us to deliver us and save us. Now, ultimately, he wants to talk to them about Jesus. He wants to tell them how they're rejecting the Savior that God had just sent to them. But but he's building a case, and he's building an argument all through this sermon where he's basically saying to them, uh, this isn't the first time that this has happened. This isn't the first time that we've rejected the Savior that God has sent to us. In fact, just open up your Bible, and you will see time after time after time where the people of God have done this. Two characters in particular that Stephen highlights are Joseph and Moses. Joseph and Moses. And Stephen tells their stories in such a way that we can see very clearly that both of these men were were types or pictures of the Lord Jesus. That they were pictures of Jesus and how they came to deliver us. And they were also pictures of Jesus in the way that they were rejected by the nation of Israel. First off, let's think about Joseph. And you can see the story of Joseph in verses 9 through 16. Right out of the gate, Stephen reminds them that it was their patriarchs, the, the, the ones who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, who were jealous of their brother Joseph and got rid of him and sold him into slavery because of their jealousy. Uh, he, he reminds them that, that they were sick of him. They were sick of his dreams. They were sick of how he paraded himself around in that coat of many colors. And they did not want it anymore. And so they wanted him gone. And yet in verse 10, it says, God delivered him out of all of his troubles. And then Stephen condenses like 13 chapters in the book of Genesis down to about two verses. And he explains how God elevated Joseph, how he put him over all of the land of Egypt, right under the Pharaoh, how God used him to save his own family and to save many other people as well. And so here's just kind of a summary of Stephen's point that he's making. The the person that their fathers, that their patriarchs rejected because they were jealous of him was actually the one that God was with the one that God's favor rested on, the one that God had sent to deliver and rescue them. Now, what story does that sound like in the Bible? Right, that's the story of Jesus, the one that they were envious of, that they were jealous of. And because of their jealousy, they rejected him and sent him to the cross, the very one that God had sent to save them and to save us. The story of Joseph is one picture of Jesus. The second picture of Jesus here is the story of Moses. Now, Moses lived uh, 120 years uh, in his life, and his, his life, it's kind of interesting, it divides out pretty evenly into three periods of 40 years. He had a beginning and a middle and an end. His first 40 years was lived in Pharaoh's house in Egypt, and his second 40 years was lived in Midian in the wilderness, and that's when he got married, had a couple of kids, that's when he saw God in the burning bush. And then the last 40 years of his life was when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, when the plagues happened, when he led them across the Red Sea and led them in the wilderness for the last 40 years of his life, from when he was 80 to when he was 120. Uh, You know, I know Mount Rushmore has been in the news the past few weeks, and if ancient Israel had a Mount Rushmore, uh, we need to understand Moses would be on it, right? Moses would be carved into that rock. 
Uh, he would be there right alongside Abraham, right alongside David. We might argue about who the fourth one might have been, but Moses would have been there for sure. He was the one God used to deliver the entire nation of Israel after they had been in slavery for 430 years. He's the one God used to lead them out and to lead them to the very brink of the promised land. And yet, what Stephen focuses on in his telling of the story of Moses is how the people of God rejected him over and over again. In fact, in verses 23 to 29, he, he spends a lot of time about this one incident that happened when Moses turned 40 years old. He was still living in Pharaoh's house. He went out into the streets, and he saw an Egyptian beating up an Israelite. And he defended that Israelite to the point that he ended up killing that Egyptian man. Now the next day he goes back in the street again and he sees two Israelites arguing and he tries to be a peacemaker and he tries to help them. And yet they reject him and one of them says to him, are you going to kill me just like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And then he also says to them, and you can see the words there in verse 27, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? That phrase is so important that Stephen actually quotes it two times in this sermon. If you look down a few verses later in verse 35, you'll see it again. He says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So the one that you rejected is actually the one that God sent. And if you look down in verse 39, he says it again, Whom our fathers would not obey but rejected, and in their hearts, they turn back to Egypt. He's saying, just like Joseph, Moses is another person that God sent to deliver you, to rescue you and redeem you, and yet you rejected him, you would not listen to him, in your heart you left him already. And what Stephen is trying to say is that history is just repeating itself. The same thing that happened with Joseph and the same thing that happened with Moses is the same thing that just happened with the very Son of God. Their ultimate deliverer, their ultimate rescuer came down from heaven to save them and save us and they turned away from him and rejected him just like they did all the rest. Of course, this is where Stephen ends. His powerful speech is with the third and most important example of how stubborn they were towards God. Number three, they betrayed and murdered the righteous one that God had sent. If the Jewish leaders didn't know that Stephen was talking directly to them, they certainly knew it by the end of this sermon because he dispenses with the third person and he moves to the second person. He starts saying you. In verses 51 and 52, look at that again. He says, you, stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom now you have become the betrayers and the murderers. When he speaks about them being uncircumcised in their heart, you know, they had the mark of circumcision on their bodies, which was an outward sign that they were a part of the people of God. But he was saying to them, even though you have that outward sign that you belong to the people of God, you, you don't have the inward sign. Your heart is not right with God. In fact, as one person put it, your heart is no more responsive to God than the uncircumcised pagans that live around you. And then he said to them, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Every time the Holy Spirit is doing something, you resist it. He's doing something right now, and you're resisting it. You're not recognizing it. You're not seeing it. And you stand in a long line of people who have done that because it runs 
in your family. And of course, we need to recognize, even though we're probably mostly Gentiles in this room, it runs in our family too. We've been resisting and rejecting the Spirit of God since the Garden of Eden. We've been putting our fingers in our ears and saying, we do not want to listen to your word. We want to do what we want to do. And even though he's laying the blame here for the death of Christ upon these religious leaders, we know from the rest of God's word that ultimately all of us share in that blame. Because it was all of our sin that put him on the cross. The righteous one was put to death. You know, if the righteous one is put to death, it means that all of us who had a hand in putting him to death, which is all of us, are not righteous ones. We who are unrighteous put the righteous one to death. And because of that, it doesn't matter how spiritual we think we are. They thought because they had the land and the temple and they were experts in reading the law of Moses that they were saved that they did not need Jesus to save them. But listen to what Jesus said to them in John chapter 5. He said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But you do not believe his writings, And how will you believe my words? Friends, we've been talking this morning about being stubborn, about being stiff-necked towards God. And we've seen how stiff-necked these religious leaders were. Stephen gives many examples of that. Talks about their, their sacred cows and how they rejected all the other deliverers that God sent. How they even rejected the righteous one himself and put him on the cross. But the real question this morning for us to consider is not whether uh, they were stiff-necked people thousands of years ago. The real question for us to think about is, are we stiff-necked people today? In our hearts right now, are we hard towards the Lord and towards his voice? Maybe you're here today and you're a Christ follower. You, at one point in your life, you surrendered to Jesus. You, you took his yoke upon you. But I want you to think about right now is right now with that yoke of Christ upon you, as, as God speaks to you and as he asks you to turn to the right or to the left, how easy is it for God to move your neck one way or another? When he speaks to you and he calls your name and he says, I want you to go here. I want you to do this. I want you to change that. I'm speaking to those who are Christians in this room right now. speaking to myself. How easy is it for God to say something to us and we move? Because our hearts are not hard like a rock. Our hearts are like like Plato in his hands. We're ready for him to put his fingers in and to mold them and to shape them and to move us. Maybe you'd be honest enough to say right now, I think my heart is kind of hard to God. There's some areas of my life And he keeps speaking to me about, maybe he's speaking to you about it every time you hear a sermon. Even if I don't mention it, he's he's speaking to you about it through his spirit. Every time you open your Bible and have a quiet time, he's addressing the same thing. He's putting the, the finger of his spirit on that same area in your life over and over and over again because he loves you. Because he's trying to call you back to the path that he has for you. And if that's you, friend, then today is the day to confess that hard heartedness to God. 
and to say to him, I don't want to be stubborn anymore. I don't want to be hard-hearted anymore. I want to be soft in my heart towards you. Maybe you're here today and you'd have to admit that your whole life up until this point, you really haven't been trying to follow the Lord, you know, at all. That really kind of the attitude of your heart to Jesus has been more like uh, the attitude of the Israelites to Moses. You know, who made you ruler and judge over me? Now, I'm, I'm going to do my own, my own deal. And maybe to, today God has just been speaking to your heart and you've realized that, you know, the one who made Jesus ruler and judge over you is God. The one, one who made you has made his son king and Lord. And maybe today you've realized for the first time, I am a sinner and I do need a savior and I need to stop being so proud thinking that these sacred cows are going to save me. And I need to realize I, I need to come to Jesus. I need to bow down. I need to accept him into my heart and into my life because he did pay for all of our sin at the cross. And he did rise again on the third day. That's good news. But we have to be humble enough to receive it. I, I want to ask you to stand right now. I want to ask you to receive that good news right now. If you're in this room and God is speaking to you, come and speak with me or one of the other pastors that's here at the front. Come and kneel here at the altar and pray. You come right now as God speaks to you.